Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 387 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron. I'm so happy you're here with me today as I am talking to uh, Julie Carrick Dalton. And oh boy, the post it chat, the retalk. You know how I feel about post-its. Um, so that's coming up and it's a delightful, wonderful conversation about really following what our character needs. Uh, what's going on around here? I'm going to speak quickly because I'm on uh, under the gun of time today. It's just been a very, very busy day and a busy week. But I will say that I sent the book to my editor and I'm just so happy that it is off my desk, and I'm also looking forward to it getting back on my desk. Um, spring is springing in New Zealand, and at the moment, my dog has a visitor, her best friend, uh, and they're racing around the hill as I look up. And so if you hear any barking or any noises, that will be them. What else is going on? That's it. That's it. I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for tuning in and thinking about your own writing. And let's just talk to Julie because um, that's she's she's the important one here. As a journalist, Julie Carrick Dalton has published more than a thousand articles in the Boston Globe, Business Week, The Hollywood Reporter, Orion Magazine, Electric Literature, and other publications. A Tin House and Breadloaf Breadloaf alum and a graduate of Grub Street's Novel Incubator, she holds a master's degree in literature and creative writing from Harvard Extension School. She's a frequent speaker on the topic of writing fiction in the age of climate crisis. A mom to four kids and two dogs, she is an avid skier, hiker, and kayaker. A former beekeeper, she also farms a gorgeous tract of land in rural New Hampshire. The Last Beekeeper is her most recent novel. Please enjoy this interview. Please get your own writing done. Please do things in a hurry if you're in a hurry like I am today. Or do things slowly and leisurely if that is how you need to take care of your writer self right now. There is no right and no wrong way to be a writer. Okay, there's a wrong way of being a writer. If you're mean and you rarely write, but when you do write, you're mean. That, I will say, categorically, is the wrong way to be a writer. But otherwise, if you're doing some writing and you're being kind to yourself, try to do both of those things. You're doing a freaking great job. So let's go into the interview. Here we go. Thank you for being here, my friends. This episode is brought to you by my book, Fast Draft Your Memoir. Write your life story in 45 hours, which is, by the way, totally doable when I tell you how. It's the same class I teach in the Continuing Studies program at Stanford each year, and I'll let you in on a secret. Even if you have no interest in writing a memoir yet, the book has everything I've ever learned about the process of writing, and of revision, and of story structure, and of just doing this thing that's so hard and yet all we want to do. Pick it up today. Well, I am so pleased to welcome you to the show today. Will you please share your name and pronouns with us? Yes, I'm glad to be here. My name is Julie Carrick-Dalton. I use she, her pronouns. Thank you very much. Welcome to the show. So I am so excited to talk about The Last Beekeeper. We're going to get to that part. But this is a show about process. And I would love to talk to you about what your process is like. And um, 
as right before we were recording, uh, you did say that you move between two places. You move between a city and the woods kind of atmosphere to live in. And I'd also love to hear how your writing process differs in the two places, if it does. Oh, that's interesting. I've never thought about that. I don't know that it does so much. Um, So I, my first book uh, was called Waiting for the Night Song. I wrote that book. I just like by the seat of my pants, I didn't plan anything. I just let it go thinking the art would happen. And that was a mess. (laughs) That took a lot of revision. So now I am a very um, dedicated plotter. I outline my books um, and I draw them. I draw the plots like on a chart, like big, huge pieces of paper. So I take them, but when I travel between Boston and New Hampshire, um, I take those papers with me and there's big sticky notes, like giant sticky notes the size of poster board. I put them on my walls. And so I can see the the shape of my plot while I'm writing. I can look at my outline and see it visually, not just like think about it. And um, yeah, I don't think I could, I don't think I can write without them now. So I am obsessed with post-it notes and all sorts of this kind of thing. So I would love to go (laughs) embarrassingly deep on this. So I've seen those big, huge post-it notes and they are the size of like a, a poster board. They're probably what, like 25 inches by 15 wide or something like that. Bigger than that. Yeah. It's bigger than that. Like I'd say it's probably like two and a half by three feet, probably. It's a huge piece of, it's like a poster board you'd use for a science project kind of thing. Oh my gosh. And then, so are you working with one of those or two or three? What do you do? Three. Tell me yeah, details. So th- yes. So I, I, I take, after I have a really detailed outline, um, sometimes I wait till after I have a rough first draft. Sometimes I'll do it before the first draft and I'll make a, a graph. And on the, like the bottom axis, I put all the chapters. The book I'm working on right now has 42 chapters. So there's 42 mm-hmm. lines across the bottom. Um, and then on the vertical axis, I make a, a chart, like a one to 10 rating. And I um, go through each chapter and I rank the tension in the chapter. Yes. Um, You're freaking me out. This is so good. (laughs) So I can see it. So I can see, and I do multiple timelines. All three of my books have either had multiple timelines or multiple points of view. Mm -hmm. So each character or timeline has a color. Mm-hmm. So when I graph them, the, the the different timelines are interacting with each other. So I can see if the tension's rising in one timeline and lagging in the other. Sometimes it's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe you don't want them both spiking at the same time. Right. Maybe you do, but you can see it. So I, I kind of, you know, generate this visual, but I also graph all the character arcs on top of it. So the plot has a color, the, each character has a color. And so I can see how each character is interacting with the plot and how each point of view is interacting with each other and how they're like how I'm passing the narrative off from one t- point of view to the next and for me it's not enough to just write it down in an outline i need to like see it and it's also wonderful because sometimes you know especially when you have multiple points of view or multiple timelines you want you know if i you know think i want to go back and add something you know where was the moment that she fell in love with the guy i can look at the chart and see what was the tension like in that chapter and the chapter before it and the chapter after it and how do i want to bring, you know, like romantic feelings into that setting, you know, it's, and so it's, um, it's just a really great practice for me. And then I keep them all and I have all the graphs from every book I've written. Um, I'm pretty sure someday when I'm wildly famous, it'll be worth a ton of money, right? So much money. So are you, so you're using different colors and I'm, so you've said that you do this after you do your outline, which I'm assuming is in word or scrivener or something yeah, like that, right? right. Is it like exactly. a beat sheet with written out? Uh, like do you have something yeah written planned for each chapter then? Yeah. I actually really also love the, just the general framework in um, the uh, Save the Cat 
Um, yeah. You know, Sears, there's like 15 points in a story. I'm not religious about adhering to it, but it's a really great framework to start with. And that's usually where I start my outlines from, just kind of referring to that. I do it in, um, uh, in Scrivener. And mm-hmm. because you can color code everything in Scrivener, every character and yep. timeline has their own color and you can move them around because especially with multiple timelines and characters, sometimes the chapters don't stay where you, you know, they, they move. So, yeah. um, yeah, so I, I, I start with it on my computer and then it moves onto my wall and then it, so, then it goes ba- back into the computer. <laughs> so when you're doing the colors on the post-its, you're, you, and it sounds like you're doing this as a revision tool right? Cause you've already got yes. either got the, the outline or the, the rough first draft you're using it as a revision tool. So then I, I told you I would get granular on this because this excites me so much. You've already put the colors up there. I'm assuming you're using colored pen. What happens when you are changing things and moving things around? Do you redo that post-it? You do? This is making I do. me so happy. Oh my, yeah. I want to roll around on the floor with joy. This so is I will admit, beautiful. I will admit I use colored pencils and you can erase them, but you can't move a whole chunk around, you know, right. once you've got it. it every, right. So I will, I will, annotate it. I will amend it, move, have arrows. And then when I get to a new phase, I redo the whole thing. Um, because for me, it's all about seeing the tension. And if you move something, the little arrow isn't going to, you know, do it justice. I need to see how that plot point interacts with the plot points before it and after it. That so I get very nerdy amazing. with my colored pencils. <laughs> do you have, and it's absolutely okay if you say no, Rachel, I do not, but do you have a picture of that on your blog anywhere or on a website or Instagram I that I could, will yeah, you send me I the do. link so that I can include I it in the show notes? Because yeah. people will want to look at that. Yeah, I do. I'll have to, I'll have to find it. Um, but the funny thing about it, I love this. This is just silly, but um, the first one I did, I had been taking a writing class and I made this giant poster. I was so proud of myself, this beautiful art project. And I took it yeah. in and I showed it to my writing instructor and she looked at it sideways and turned her head. She's like, huh, that kind of looks like a horse running. Now, if you imagine all the angles of these lines <laughs> in, her, in her different um, plot arcs, different um, character arcs interacting, it looked like this artsy horse running in the wind. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. So I did the next book. I graph it, everything. I showed it to my husband and he looks at it sideways. He's like, huh, that looks like a grasshopper. And I'm like, oh, okay. So now I have this theory that every of my, every one of my books has an animal hidden in the plot. And until I can see the animal, the plot is not complete. (laughs) I have goosebumps. And then I would want to take that further. I'd want to get like a piece of jewelry made to honor that horse and the grasshopper. Yeah. Yeah. So so I will get, I will find the pictures and, um, and get them to you, but they're, 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 um, they're fun. Oh, that is awesome. Okay. So then when it comes down to just getting your writing done, are you a work a day, every day kind of person, or are you more of a binge writer? What is your process in there? I'm a binger for sure. Sometimes I'll go weeks without really writing. Like I might Mm -hmm. be thinking about it or doing research, but I can take time off from writing and it's okay with me. I don't feel that need to get my butt in chair every single day. Um, Right now I'm in hardcore binge mode. Like I go to sleep thinking about it. I wake up, I get my coffee and I'm at it all day and I'm excited to be doing it. Like right now I'm in my happiest writer phase right now. I'm I'm working on a second draft Uh of my, of my new book. And that's my favorite when it's still fresh and new and I'm finding the little diamonds in the rough and shaping it. And the, the graph is coming into, you know, into focus. And um, so I will write eight hours a day, some days, um, two hours the next day. I don't have, I'm not an organized schedule person. Um, I just go as, as I'm able. And it gets done. And that is, uh, that is beautiful. I find that that, that particular stage of revision is super delicious to me too, because it's still hard. It's still difficult. So it's really commanding my attention, 
but it's something that I can do and it feels so good to get done. Do you find that? Yes, I do. I get so much satisfaction out of figuring out a little plot problem or realizing something that I'd laid the groundwork for and didn't even do it consciously. I'm sure that happens to you all the time that you write something, you you see a connection that you didn't even intend, but it makes so much sense. And then bringing that out and kind of finding those little things and, um, you know, elevating them in the story. That's my favorite, favorite part. So um, yeah, I'm in my happy place right now. That is what I was going to ask you. Um, What is your biggest joy when it comes to writing? Is it, is it that, or is it something else? No, I think revising is my biggest joy in deep revision. Like I love going deep with the characters and, um, and finding those little, little, uh, little like shiny moments that I didn't realize I was writing when I was, you know, going through the first draft things that like Mm -hmm. pop out, like, you know, Oh, why were the boots red? And then I realized there's this really important reason why I made her boots red into little things like that. So that to me is, it's almost like um, I'm surprising myself and that's very fun. Um, Mm -hmm. It's like finding little Easter eggs. I also plant a lot of Easter eggs in my books, like for my family and friends. And so I love I love incorporating little in, like insider secrets that no yes. one else would notice into my story. So that's a lot of fun too. I do that, but I I don't have a great memory. So sometimes I do that and then I forget. I remember once <laughs> I stole I stole a friend's cat and I used this absolute cat and put it in the book and it had just a, a minor role, but it was a funny role. And then I never told her because it then became my cat. It was just my cat I was writing right. about. And then she wrote to me when she read the book, she said, is that my cat? And I, oh yeah, I did. I still, I'm sorry. That is. <laughs> That is Charlie. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I um in my uh, in uh, the last beekeeper, I have four children, and I um in the book there's a subplot about the characters sharing books, where they're trading books and buying books, and they're discussing them. But they're all made up books; they're not real titles. And my copy editor called me out on it. And she's like, "Julie, you know these." aren't real books. You couldn't use real books. And I'm like, nope, these are the books because all four of the book titles are anagrams of my children's names. <gasps> and I didn't tell them. And I just, I just told them, I was like, those, look at the books. One of those books is for each of you, but you need to figure out why. So that was very fun. <laughs> it's so cool. Okay. Yeah, I think you have a brain very similar to mine. And um, I like to name uh, people who are going to get together romantically. I put their last names as I, I use cross streets from cities I love, oh. like Bancroft and Durant. You know, they they cross in Oakland or is it South Berkeley? I can't remember. But like the the, the and I no love that. that. But but I always had this idea of doing some kind of photo plan where I would go and take a picture of the of the that particular sign. But I, I never got around to it. But yeah, oh, that's, I love that. That's that way. Fa- that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I love to play with stuff like that. Just makes me happy. What is your biggest challenge when it comes to writing? Plot. I think yeah. plot is is really challenging for me. Um, I go off on tangents, especially when I'm drafting, <clears throat> and I think they're all brilliant. Um, I think everything is incredibly necessary that I'm writing, and it's all vital. And then I give it to my agent. She's like, "Oh well, um, this subplot is really not doing anything." And um, and I I don't see that. I get so close to my writing that I I'm not a great reader of my own work in the beginning. That I. Um, you know, I sometimes make my characters go through too many hoops to get from point A to point B when I could have just had them walk there. Um, so that is my biggest challenge. I hope I'm getting better at that. I'm trying to be more conscious of that. Um, but yeah, plot is a weakness for me that um, I have great partners. I have a wonderful agent, a wonderful editor, and fantastic beta readers who, you know, don't let me get away with anything. Yeah. And um, I think I'm learning slowly. Yeah. And, but I also do think that that will always be the job of outside eyes for many of us. I, cause I have the same problem. And, but when somebody tells me I don't need a plot line, I'm always very offended. 
for a couple of days before realizing <laughs> that they're completely right. But yeah. I need that. I need that a couple of days of offense. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a, a situation in the last beekeeper that there was um, a scene. I'm not going to talk about it because it's at the very end of the book. And it's a, yeah. you know, like a scene that you don't want to talk about if you haven't read the book. But when I originally wrote it, I was really excited about this idea but I didn't build it up enough. I didn't let the character earn the moment. Mm. And so when my agent read it, I was like, okay, what did you think? And she was, you know, it's like, well, it's a little cheesy. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, cheesy. Okay, that's not what I was going for. That's a terrible um, word. <laughs> yeah, cheesy. And, and um, I may have asked her, is this cheesy? She may not have come up. But anyway, yes, it was cheesy. And she was right because I hadn't created a scenario where it made sense for these people uh. to do this thing. And so then I, it, like, I got it in my, like in, it was in me, like I was going to make this scene work. And I worked so hard to make this one moment pay off. Like I was, as I, every revision I did, I was building little things into the story with the eye that this scene won't be cheesy. And I think I pulled it off because I did include it. And I really, I've gotten good feedback on the scene and I, um, yeah, that was, that was, uh, yeah, that that's, it's always hard when you don't see something, someone points it out and it hurts, but then, you know, but you, but you always recognize it, you know, that I, I have yeah. never been told by my agent or an editor, something that I didn't know in my heart of hearts, like they say it. And I go, Ugh, I was hoping rude, you weren't going to notice that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that if you weren't going to notice it, then I did a good enough job, but I love that you mentioned that because that was the gift of revision after revision, after revision, you made that scene work. And perhaps you could have done light revision and it would have been kind of good, but by thinking about it so deeply, now it means something so yeah. true. Oh, that, yeah. is, that is gorgeous. I, I fought for it. <laughs> you, you had to fight for it and you made it work. What is the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you in your writing career? Oh, I have a, an easy answer to this one. I had this writing friend named um, Nancy Johnson and she and I met years ago at a writer's conference. We were both writing at the same time, both querying at the same time. We got agents within months of each other. We got our first book deals within months of each other. And so we were on this journey together mm -hmm. and, um, she, her book came out from William Morrow and it was getting a little more high profile press than mine. My debut was doing great. I was making lists and I was very pleased. Hers was doing a little bit better, which I was really thrilled for her. She got invited to be a, a, a featured speaker at a, um, a really great literary conference. And um, they asked her to find someone to interview her who, and so she said, can I ask Julie Carrick Dalton, which I thought was very kind. But then what she did is after they agreed, to have me interview her. She said, I would prefer not to have Julie interview me. I would like it to be a shared joint mutual conversation between the two of us. So she like gave up her spotlight to allow me to be in that place that um, was really meaningful to me. And it was, a, we had a wonderful conversation and it was just a very kind thing to do because I would have been so happy to just interview her, but mm -hmm. she shared a moment that was meant to be hers to share it equally with me, which was a very kind, kind thing to do. I, uh, perhaps when this episode comes out, you will send her this because I can imagine she would love to hear you say, yeah, that that's just such a beautiful, beautiful, kind thing to do. Yeah. And her, she has a, her book is called the kindest lie. Also, I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. She's a wonderful writer. So keep an eye out for her. And what a great title. Um, yeah. I skipped a question that I want to go back to. Um, we, yeah. we, you may have touched on a little bit, but can you share a craft tip of any sort with us? Yeah. So I have, um, I, I started doing this with my first book that I had, um, a character who was, you know, like, uh, I don't know, not a necessarily a villain, but, you know, kind of a villainy guy. And, um, he had done a thing and, uh, it didn't sit right. Like readers were like, 
saying he felt a little flat. It didn't, you know, it, they weren't buying him. He wasn't a full real character. And I couldn't figure out why. Like, I felt like I had worked on him. So I wrote a chapter, the same chapter, but from his point of view, to find out what was going on in his head, like why he would do this thing. And I realized he wouldn't do the thing. And that's why nobody was buying it. The character I had built wouldn't do the thing. And I was forcing someone to do something that they wouldn't do. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, that's like really deep. I was like, okay. And I had to change the ending of my book. To completely change. I completely changed the ending of my book because the person who was supposed to do the thing wouldn't his in his nature wouldn't do the thing and i didn't want to i had liked the character i had actually created and so um i've done that a couple times since that when i'm in a scene that feels like it's not working i i write a scene from someone else's point of view i don't use it in the book i do this for mm -hmm. me that when you're writing through someone else's um worldview like you see things the, the character sees different things they maybe notice different things they respond differently than like your point of view character and it lets you see the room or the you know the scenery from a different vantage point and you can understand why that person would or in my case would not do the thing you're trying to make them do so that to me is a really great exercise i've never used any of these scenes um but they're just more for me to kind of break that, you know, when I'm having a block, why something's not working that helps me break the block. I think it's a brave exercise too, because what you're doing by, by choosing to write that scene from that point of view is you're also saying to your subconscious, like, I'm going to ask some questions and I'm also going to listen because I, I don't know about you, but my plot, I struggle with very, very much. And when I decide that somebody's going to do something, I tend to shove them into doing the thing that I have decided because I have decided that the plot will work best that way. And if yep. the character refuses to do it as they do, there's usually a good reason. And a lot of times I don't want to hear it. So what you did was you you ask the question and then you listen to the answer and then you revised to make a fit. Yeah. Yeah. That was tough. I wasn't happy about it, yeah. <laughs> but it, but it, but it's what the book needed. It's what the characters needed. So yeah, sometimes you need to, you know, let your characters talk to you. Oh, that is lovely. Thank you. What is the kindest thing that you've ever done for yourself as a writer? Um, well, I took up, I, in, enrolled in a program called the Novel Incubator years ago, which is, um, it's like an MFA level year long novel intensive. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, I have four kids, you know, I had been at the time I've, I've recently sold my farm, but I had been running a farm for almost 15 years wow. um, by myself and, wow. you know, with, four, with four kids and, um, there was, and writing. it was, <laughs> and, and trying to write. Yeah. And, um, that I gave myself permission to do this thing. And it was about a 20 to 25 hour a week commitment. It was not a writing class that you just go to on a one night a week and it's over. It was a very big commitment. And I did it and talked to my family about it. And I said, you know, I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to take this seriously for like a year. I'm going to go every week. I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to meet every deadline. And, you know, by, you know, making it be something in it, you know, I was paying for, um, forced me to take it seriously and to be present for the other people. They pick 10 people every year. It's a competitive program to get into. And so to fully take advantage of the opportunity, I had to really commit to it. And that meant, you know, sometimes not having dinner on the table or saying, okay, you guys were not going here this weekend or choosing to put myself first for some things, which as a mom is sometimes not the, the, my, the first thing I think of, you know, yeah. that, so it was, it was just kind of like committing to something and saying, I deserve the chance to do this thing. And that was what the, in that class is where I wrote my first book waiting for the night song. Oh my goodness. That is wonderful. 
what an enormous, enormous gift you gave yourself in terms of like money and time and especially energy. Like you yeah. were committing the energy to that and it paid off. Yeah, it really did. It was a wonderful community. It, um, the Novel Incubator is a fantastic program it's through Grub Street in Boston. Yeah. And it's a, um, yeah, that that group of the alumni from that program were very, very close in a really supportive community. So I got more than just writing out of it. I got a whole community of friends. How long ago was that? I graduated from the program in 2017. Okay. So I, I went in in 2016. Long, yeah. yeah. So it hasn't yeah. been that long. So I went, I had a, like a rough draft of a book going in. It was a mess, a total, total mess. I rewrote the entire thing multiple times and um, came out with a book that got me an agent within months of graduating. And it's like, that was something I am really proud of myself for, for, ha- for doing for myself, you know, not mm-hmm. saying, oh, I don't need to do that. Or, you know, I don't have time for that. Or writing is, you know, not my jobs. So and it is now I sold my farm writing is my job now. Good job. You, that just Mm -hmm. makes my face hurt from smiling. (laughs) Thank you. Or just, all right. What is the best book that you have read recently? And why did you love it? Oh, so I just finished this fantastic book by a a debut author. The book is called the night flowers Mm -hmm. by um, Sarah Herkenrother. And it's a, a it's a thriller, kind of a mystery murder story that um, centers on this cold case where there are three bodies found in the woods, and it's been thirty years and no one solved the crime. And then, for various reasons, these two women who don't know each other, different parts of the country, take it upon themselves to solve this cold case. And they have different motives, the two women, um, and different reasons that that this case matters to them. And the and at some point they come together and team up. But it's a beautiful story because the um, it, the bodies that were found were a woman and two children. And the the dead woman's ghost is one of the point of view characters. And it's not oh weird. It's beautiful. Sign me up. It's a beautiful rendering of, um, it's very ethereal. Like it doesn't, it, it sounds, she doesn't always, um, it doesn't have this concrete human sounding voice, but it's it's not silly. It's like very serious and it's not overdone. You know, it's not heavy handed and she doesn't give you a lot. In fact, the ghost withholds more information than anybody in the book because she isn't ready to share her story. And it's such a, it's about stories, sharing our stories and hearing other people's stories and recognizing and seeing people for who they are. Um, But it's wonderful how these two point of view characters who are alive and then the point of view character who is not kind of all three of these women are telling one story. Um, and it's very beautiful. I mean, I always like multiple point of view stories, Mm -hmm. but, um, when I, when, if someone said, oh, and one of them's a ghost, I might side eye you like, oh, that's going to be kind of silly, but it's not at all. It's very beautiful. The night flowers by Sarah Herkenrother. Amazing. I'm going to go grab that immediately because the, the book that has been floating around my mind for the next book and just very, very loosely, it, it's been saying that it wants a ghost point of view. And I've been saying, I'm not going to do that. Um, oh, but, read it. Yeah, read yeah, it. Yeah, that sounds perfect. All right. Speaking yes. of amazing, amazing books, will you please tell us about The Last Beekeeper? Of course. Thanks for asking. So um, The Last Beekeeper to my second book uh, came out in March, and it's a near future story about, it's just a little bit in the future, not 
very far. It's a very recognizable world. No weird technology or flying hoverboards or anything. <laughs> so it's just like a little a hair in the future. And it's about a beekeeper and his daughter, Sasha, as the world's pollinator population collapses uh, much quick, much more quickly than we're expecting it to. And it, you know, sends us into uh, agricultural chaos and food insecurity, which, you know, affects the economy and politics. So it's just losing our pollinators. So, sends the whole world into this crisis. So it's about Sasha um, and when she's an 11-year-old girl as the bees are dying. And then her other point of view um, timeline is she's this Sasha is 22. And at this point in the book, um, the pollinators have been gone for 10 years. Um, the world is very different than the world she grew up in. Um, it's much more like has a more dystopian vibe. Um, there's It has a feel like the um, the Dust Bowl, except mm. it's in the future. There's a lot of unemployment, tent cities, poverty, starvation, things like that. Um, but it's it's really a story about a father and daughter um, finding their way back to each other after crisis. It's a story about a found family that comes together in the middle of a crisis. It's about forgiveness and redemption, and against the whole the whole story set against the backdrop of climate crisis and why are we losing our pollinators? Um, so it's a, I I really I I'm really proud of the book. I had a lot of fun writing it. And the characters in this book are my favorite I've ever written. I'm I love the characters in this book. I can tell. I can like see the love on your face for them as you're talking about them. That is really really beautiful. Where can we find you out there in the world? Well, I, you can find me on all the usual places. I am on um, Instagram at um, Julie C Dalton, and I'm on Twitter at Julie Cardalt, um, and I am on Facebook Julie Carrick Dalton. Um, I have a website at juliecarrickdalton.com. <laughs> There's a pattern there. Um, but yeah, I love hearing from folks. If, you know, reach out and say hi, give me a follow and I'll follow you back. I love making new friends. Thank you. Well, I am, I have been just thrilled to talk to you. Thank you for blowing my mind with some of these ideas, especially the post-it thing. <laughs> I cannot wait. Yes. If you would please send me through a picture or two, I will include that in the show notes because <laughs> okay. uh, my listeners will want to Thanks want so to see that. Thank you so much, Julie. It has been a joy to talk write. to you today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been lots of fun. Rachel Heron or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends.